This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 42, part B. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on the Negotiate X podcast. We are continuing our conversation with Hal Aberson, a full-time faculty member at Toro Law Center. If you haven't already checked out part A of this episode, then please go ahead and do that first before diving in. Now let's just jump into it. Hey, okay, so Hal, so at the beginning of our conversation here, you had talked about how everyone is an expert at negotiations, or at least they think that. So then how do you develop a course to teach negotiations to people who sure. think they may already know everything. Well, what I'm about to describe to you did not occur overnight. Okay. <laughs> it's a uh, life is a set of trial and errors. You learn, you get feedback, you go, Ooh, that wasn't so smart. Or, that was brilliant. 10 years <laughs> later. So when I first started teaching this stuff, I never taught positional negotiation. I just thought that's what you go to law school for is teach people to play this game of Right. I will make a first offer. You'll make a counter offer. I'll play poker or some version in this negotiation game, and then we'll get to some compromise. I felt that that was not very productive, and I, for years, never taught it. And then I started realizing that was not a very good choice because I had to take people where they are. It goes to your question about people already are experienced. And I wasn't fully respecting that in my early years of teaching. So I revamped my courses and started by teaching positional negotiation. And I had to study it, go into it deeply, figure out what does it mean to be a good positional negotiator, a person that's going to function through offers and counteroffers, and, and then teach it. So I start all my courses with that now in negotiation because I want to take them where they are. So they don't reject things. Because if you come up with something so new and radical, they go, this is not relevant. This has nothing to do with my world. So I want to start with their world. So I start with a positional negotiation. And the one we did at the Air Force Academy was with a, a car, used car sales. And, and everyone has experience buying cars. Okay, So we do that. And then we talk about what makes it work well, what does not. And it's a very easy way to begin to introduce objective standards because you have the Kelly book value right away. And if you're thinking about buying, selling a car, she started introducing some of the concepts. And then I say, okay, now we're going to go into some newer stuff. And then I'm going to show you at the end of the course how what you will be doing with your whole lifetime, how it fits into the bigger picture. So I'm not discarding it. I'm not rejecting it. I'm just going to show you how it fits in. So now we're going to start introducing interest-based negotiation, introduce problem solving, introducing some of the concepts that we're all familiar with as teachers in this field. And then at the end, I come back to positional negotiation and show the small role it plays in the overall negotiation, usually at the very end. 
Thank you for that. I think that's helpful from a design perspective. And some of our listeners teach negotiation. I know I'm always constantly wrestling with the best way to present these ideas in a holistic over the time of a course. Sure. You taught, you mentioned teaching at the Air Force Academy. You know, where were their differences and how did that affect the way you taught the students in terms of, you know, future officers in the Air Force versus future lawyers coming out of uh, Toro? I think it's all the same with an exception I'm going to mention in a moment. Uh, whenever I be, teach negotiations, I always begin with the same opening line or do a training program. What we're going to cover here applies to your personal life, applies as a lawyer to deal with legal disputes, or deals with world peace. It's all the same process. The same ideas in play here. Where I think it is important is to give people illustrations that they can relate to and not relying on the vetted classic cases. So I went to the Air Force Academy. It was very interesting. What happened. There's so many things that happened. It was so fascinating. It was a, 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 really a, a year of treasure for the rest of my life. I learned so much. It was just a great group I had an opportunity to work with. And Imagine how good it would have been if you were at the U.S. Military Academy. <laughs> <laughs> They're so on the street. They're, yep. cl- they're close by. <laughs> uh, uh, they're a couple out there. I'm in New York. So so they hire me with the idea that they want to reassess their program. It's been around about 10 years at that point, maybe longer. Yeah. And no one's really taking a fresh look as an outsider. And they have this idea, let's bring an outsider once in a while and see what we're doing and see if it makes any difference. So I said, oh, this sounds like a great opportunity. Sign me up. So I pack up from New York, rent out my apartment, move all my belongings out to Colorado Springs, know nobody. I mean nobody. This, and as I'm fond of saying, as, as you mentioned in my bio, I've done a fair amount of travel, although not everywhere, as you pointed out. There's still one continent to look forward to. Uh, <laughs> but I traveled a lot. And people have said, where are you traveling this year? I said, I'm going to a foreign country this year, but it happens to be in the U.S., because <laughs> I had no military background. And it was a foreign country for me. And people welcomed me as a, as a tourist and a visitor. Uh, but it was still new. And I get there and I sit down with a person who's in charge of the negotiation program, Carmen of Leon. And he says to me, well, here's our course. What do you have to say about it? I said, well, you know, they told me my job is I'm coming here with a clean slate, a canvas, a clean canvas. And I'm just going to take a fresh look at this from the bottom up. He says, well, not so quick. <laughs> he says, between the time they offered me the position and the time I showed up, some guy by the name of Aram has been hanging out with them. <laughs> oh, man. He spent a whole year revamping their course and incorporating all the stuff that he was teaching at West Point. And he was very impressed with the changes and a little exhausted, too. <laughs> he said, we're not really ready for more big changes. <laughs> we made a lot of changes in one year. He said, but we're happy to have your input to refine everything that Aram has done. And I think to myself, what am I doing here? <laughs> I just packed up with my entire life here for 11 months, and they may not need me. So I started looking at Aram, what Aram did, and I learned a lot from what they yeah. did at West Point. In fact, I ended up incorporating a lot of what they did. Uh, in my course, when I went back to New York. 
But now to answer your question, because I want to give the, the question a context. So now I'm looking at a program that's already well-developed and very sophisticated course. And the mm -hmm. first thing that struck me was how many exercises were still non-military based exercises. Yeah. And one of the things I knew many years ago, early in my career, was that you can have the most, the greatest idea in the world, the best idea in the world, the right idea in the world, but people aren't going to connect with it unless they have a context they can connect with. And so I was struck that you need to have more military exercises. I also made some other suggestions here. I'm sorry, but I did make a couple other uh, <laughs> adopted. But uh, the central structure was the same. And right. we started adding more and more military-based exercises. All improvements, then, Al. All improvements. I know that. And I thought that was important because it's very easy for people to reject hypotheticals that they can't relate to. And I remember early in my career, I'd have lawyers call up to me and say, this is great stuff I'm learning, but not relevant to my professional life. Hmm. And that's when I realized you have to get people exercises that are relevant to the professional life. So that was a big change. At least one of the contributions I tried to make when I was there. You made huge contributions. It was, it was a fun time to share, share, share with you. So how having both taught and practiced negotiations and mediation, what are some of the things that you find get into people's way as they are trying to navigate either negotiation or mediation? Well, this will take you back to one of the um, lessons I got through the revamp course that Aaron put together. And that is what I liked what he did was that he put together a really integrated model, a full model. Getting to ES is only a partial model. It's not a complete approach to negotiation. And now the course had this new model with this metaphor of a circle. Hmm. And what do you do before you go inside the circle? What do you do inside the circle? What do you do outside the circle? And I found that image powerful and make it and made the teaching of the material as a comprehensive theory more accessible. So the answer to your question about where I think people make the big mistake, and I'm going to use the, that model to illustrate it, is people jump inside the circle. The circle in this model is when the negotiation takes place too soon. People begin by negotiating. They don't do what they have to do before yeah. they negotiate, like building up relationships, getting information, doing the kind of preparation that's important before you go inside the circle. And so what happened for me after my experience at the Air Force Academy is I revamped my course by now spending the it's a, 14 week semester, the first four weeks, we do not go inside the circle. Hmm. We just focus on all the preparation you need to do in turn, and I have a whole bunch of modules around preparation that I've developed uh, with the idea of two things. Now I teach you what people need to do outside the circle, but teaching, getting people used to the idea, they had to slow down. And so I knew they were getting frustrated. When are we going to negotiate? When are we going to do an exercise where we have to solve something? And I said, first, you got to prepare properly. Hmm. I want to slow down. So my short answer to your question is slow down. Don't go inside the circle too quickly. That's where people get in trouble. 
you know, from your UN background or other experiences, can you, can you point to like a, a story where that happened, that happened well, you were able to say, Hey, we spent appropriate amount of time outside the circle preparing, laying the foundations for what we were going to do. Is that something that resonates with you as a story? Sure. I think one of the um, challenges when looking at negotiations is back to an earlier point I made. There's a lot we don't know. So I've been fortunate enough to have done what I now view as three very in-depth studies, negotiation, where I don't have all the answers of what happened, but I know more than the average person, average even expert in negotiation. The three is Camp David, which I did many years ago. Second one is Nelson Mandela as a negotiator, which is the article that was already mentioned. And third is an article that will be coming out very soon now with the publisher on the backstory of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So there I got to go into a lot of detail. So I'm just going to use an example right now on Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela played a big role in negotiating the dismantling of apartheid. We all know that. He's a very well-known historic figure in our world of peacemaking. He's one of the two or three best-known peacemakers in the world. He's a household name in the field. When you take a look at what he did, it was instinct. I doubt he read Getting to Yes or knew about this circle. He built relationships. He built relationships, treat people with respect. One of the things that people asked him over and over again is how could he negotiate with people who were responsible for the oppression and death of so many people over not a day, not over a year, over decades of apartheid? And his answer was, we're all victims of the same system. And, I, and we're all individuals, we're all humans, and you want to treat people as individuals, as humans. This was a person who instinctively knew the value of building relationships before he got to the stage of negotiation. Great. That's awesome. Hal, in that same article, you shared the good practices of advocating interests, understanding the other side's interests, building relationships, and forward-thinking, listening, and apologizing. Could you share with us what these are and why they are good practices? Sure. I'm going to do this in a, through another story. Yeah. And this is a story that has to do with how that article came together, at least part of the story of how the article came together. It was a work in progress at the time that this moment arrived. I was presenting to a group called the International Academy of Mediators. And I was still in the early stages of the research and trying to figure out where I'm going with this project. And they gave me like 15 minutes to do a presentation on it. And I get, and I present some of the basic points about the story. I focus on 1985 to 1990. 1985 is when Nelson Mandela was offered, he was offered many times to leave, freed from prison if he would denounce violence. Hmm. But 1985 was a particularly big moment when he was made that offer because his daughter read a speech that rejected that offer to the world, why he would not denounce violence, which is also another interesting issue from a negotiation point of view. Very interesting issue. And then the study takes a look at all the things that happened between then and 1990, 1990s when he was released from uh, prison. So I get to this, I'm presenting this work in progress to this group, and I get to the end. 
for the 15 minutes. And I said, so what are the lessons? The question you ask, what are the lessons? And I don't recall whether it's exactly the way I scripted at the time, but this is the way it came out. I said, what do we learn from Nelson Mandela? Nothing. Hmm. There was such a reaction in the room. I thought, wow, that was right on to something here. I said, if he would have been silent, this is all nothing. We get nothing learned from him. And then I said, because what he did was what any good negotiator would do. He used all the practices, all the strategies, all the things we teach, encourage people to do. If there's any lesson that comes out of the Nelson Mandela study, is to give people confidence that if these techniques can work effectively in the tractable, protracted conflict of trying to dismantle apartheid, you should feel confident using these techniques in the, our day-to-day -day disputes. And that, to me, is the real lesson of all this. And so your list are just techniques that are well-studied and everyone knows are good practices. All awesome way to frame it. Yeah, great way to frame it. You know, Hal, you've been a, you've had a quite a career, again, for the 30-plus years in this field of conflict uh, transformation. I think that's I, – I'm borrowing that from Dr. Michelle Buck over at Kellogg. It's a way she uses it. Sure. Have you ever failed? Is, is that something I can ask you to maybe share a negotiation failure that was yours? Was something you saw, something significant that impacted you? And what were the lessons learned from that negotiation failure? Well, the question I'm always asked whenever I make the mistake of explaining what my field is, I always get the same question. Okay, so what are you going to do about the Middle East? Hmm. <laughs> talk, talk about failed negotiations. Yeah. And I said, you know, what we teach, what we study, what we write about, what we practice, provide analytical tools that gives us insight into why some negotiations succeed and some do not. And it gives us a path going forward. So the one that comes up now, of course, is what's going on in Russia right. and Ukraine. And we had a group couple weeks ago they got together on Zoom, a group of international mediators. And these are the group who are people that are full-time mediators, that's their day job. I'm an academic practitioner. I'm not a full-time uh, neutral. These people are all full-time neutrals. And I was asked to present some ideas about what might be done in Ukraine, in Russia, and how to move that toward resolution. And so I said, well, let me propose an exercise to everybody. This has to do with the analytical tools that we have. And I said, why don't we break out into breakout rooms, small groups, three or four people in a group. And why, and let us all prepare a victory speech for Putin. Hmm. And there was a lot of discomfort with that because people, this was two weeks into the conflict, people are horrified, emotionally engaged, emotionally distraught, and the reaction was, that, okay, but that's going to be difficult. And I said, the reason to do that, and now I'm going to answer your question directly, is because until we understand what that speech looks like, 
Mm-hmm. We have no pathway to go forward because that speech reveals what his interests are. Right. Until we understand his interests, disputes don't get resolved. And interesting enough, people couldn't do it. Yeah. They couldn't write the speech. Right. I, I can I can see that I, I the exercise right that that academic exercise so so important to to be able to get and step into his shoes. Yes, yes, because until unless you don't uh, until you understand interest, there's no pathway to go forward. Do you have any th- any just since pulling on that a little more? Any thoughts about the direction this conflict is headed? And I mean, day by day seems to change and can, continues to get more protracted. Any other thoughts there, Al, in terms of where this may go? Well, the thoughts I had early on, and I did, presented it that day, that day, was I thought the answer was China. Okay. China is really the pathway out of this. And I was hoping that their interests would align enough with Russia and their role in world affairs to want to serve that role. Because... One of the things that was a little jarring to other people in this discussion, because the group I was with were all private mediators, not public mediators. Public mediation is different than private mediation. Private mediation, we treasure neutrality. It's all mm-hmm. about being neutral. Public mediation, who cares? It's not about neutrality. <laughs> it's about credibility. It's about clout. Mm-hmm. It's about influence. Uh, it's a very different notion. So I thought China could serve that role. I have no answer where this is going to go right now. We can, but we have the analytical tools to understand exactly what's happening. Uh, right now, uh, the BATNA is better for Putin yeah. than uh, than a negotiated resolution. Right. And the question is, at what point would negotiated resolution be better? Let me ask another question. You, you shared kind of the the struggle and failure or difficulties there. As you look back in your career, how is there a negotiation that you're particularly proud of? Something you were part of? What made that a success? Uh, what can our listeners learn maybe from from your experiences as part of something that you, that you that you deem uh, impactful? I've had a number of interesting mediations over the years. In terms of uh, illustrations. I'm hesitating because it's the issue of uh, confidentiality. Sure. Um, and and uh, I think because it's recording, I can't uh, go into uh, any particulars because the ones that come to mind, the ones probably should not be as a matter of public record. Uh, so maybe the, the, the simple answer is uh, the tools that we're discussing work. Yeah. But you got to be persistent with them. You can't be shy about them. You got to stick with them. Because it's very easy when the going gets rough to just go back to old habits. Right. So Aaron and I are always interested in how negotiation skills show up in your personal life. So away from the negotiation table or the mediation environment. So Hal, how are you able to apply these skills in your own life? Well, there's a joke within the field of dispute resolution that that doesn't work in our personal lives. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually uh, I think it does. Uh, because it's the same technique. It's all about listening. It's all about uh, understanding interests. Mm. I think the tricky part for for people who are professional negotiators is that when you apply in your personal life, people think you're being manipulated uh, when you're not. Uh, We're just listening. We're trying to understand. We're asking the questions that we know you were supposed to ask professionally. We ask privately, personally. But it's trying to, because they know so much about you, 
they question, well, what are you really trying to manipulate us to do? No, no, I'm just trying to understand what is important to you. I'm just trying to understand your interests. Uh, I don't use those words, of course. Uh, that just turns people off. You got to be careful not to use the vocabulary in these informal conversations. Uh, but that's what's going on in my head. I got to figure out what's important. And then knowing that there's more than one way to meet interest, which, which is important not only for the other side, but for you, for me. Because I may, you know, I'm, I love talking about negotiations. And the biggest problem you have when generating options and, get, and thinking you got a good answer is you fall in love with your own solution. Right. And once you fall in love with your own solution, it's hard to be flexible and be open to other ideas, other ways to get there. I haven't I figured it out in my personal life, so I'm still working on it, as my wife would probably say. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, we know who are we know who are our greatest critics. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 Nolan is Helen. I will say from being at the Air Force Academy, as long as you're on that upward trajectory, okay, it is <laughs> that's that's the important thing. So, well, well, I think it's important to see okay. the big picture. Yeah, yeah. and seeing the yeah. big picture, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in the in the tense moment, and not and it is very easy, particularly because, as I'm fond of saying in these more interpersonal exchanges, is that when I say one sentence they're not hearing one sentence they're hearing that one sentence in the context of a series of one sentences over years of time or or a little uh tone change which i may not detect they may see and say there you go again it gets more complicated because there's more data that is out there than in our standard negotiation where you're not with someone on a regular basis yeah, they're very insightful. Hey, you know, how as we get ready to wrap up, any kind of final words of wisdom and advice, key considerations for our listeners on how they can improve their negotiation skills and abilities? One piece of advice and one only. And I used to think it was easy advice to give and easy advice to implement. But after the quote 30 plus years, I no longer think that. But it's really basic understanding the other side's interests. There is no more important, powerful concept than that because once you move away from positions to interests and understand what's really motivating people, it opens the door to so many possibilities. But we get stuck in this positional negotiation as a matter of our upbringing, our default process. People, the way I like to describe it is that people are always throwing solutions at each other, not interests. You know, someone doesn't come into a room and say, I want five, th- I, here's my interest. I want to be sure there's a better world. They come in and say, I need $10,000, which I would use to have a better world. <laughs> so what sometimes people say to me in negotiation is, what do you do when someone comes in and say, here's what I want, which is really their solution. And they say, and here's the other lesson for me anyhow. That's the beginning of a conversation, not the end. Sometimes people think it's the end. When someone shares with me what they want, their position, or tells them what they're angry about, or tell me they can't talk to someone anymore because I'm fed up with this, whatever it is, that's not an end. That's what I need to begin the conversation. So interest in viewing conversations as openings, not closings. 
Hey, Hal, thank you so much for sharing those wonderful insights, and thank you so much for joining the podcast. This is a podcast that is all about elevating your influence through purposeful negotiation. So with that, turn it over to Aram for some final thoughts. Thanks, Nolan. And let me just thank you, Hal, for taking the time out of your busy day and schedule to be with us. Uh, it is great to see you again. Thanks for the impact that you've had on me. Uh, on those that are listening to this, certainly on the officers you impacted the Air Force Academy and all the students you've had through the year. So thank, thanks for that, Hal. Very appreciative of your work. Folks, there's just so much I think that you can take in terms of takeaways. I really encourage you to read uh, Hal's article on Nelson Mandela. And I think what Hal said there, if, if these skills can work and these approaches can work in that sort of environment and context, they can work with the challenges you're facing today, personally and professionally. So encourage you to look at that. Encourage you to read some of the other articles that we'll certainly link to. Uh, and again, Hal, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for this opportunity. This was a very enjoyable uh, and I really appreciate uh, the, the opportunity to answer these questions because they caused me some self-reflection. So thank you. Absolutely. So that's it for us on today's podcast. Thank you so much for joining. If you could please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. We greatly appreciate it. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.